we try to show that each week. How does redemption coincide in some form or fashion in the text? And so we're going to, hopefully I'll try to do that this morning. Hey, uh, some of you know this. This past Friday we had the Arizona Southern Baptist Convention. Every state has a state convention, and uh, every fall they have a an annual convention where they come and they disclose what has happened the past year and they pray and propose what they're budgeting for the next year. So we had it here. So we had about uh, five over 500 people, pastors, leaders from across the state were here. Our parking lot was full. They were parked all along the street and in neighborhoods, and I'm sure some of our neighbors loved that. So if you were here and your driver was blocked, I apologize. It was not my car. But it was a great time. There are two individuals in particular that really uh, made it happen. Baron Decker, who's our tech director, who's up there, and then Greg Drees, who's our facilities director. They did um, a number of things to get ready beforehand, and they were busy all day. And so I just want to say thanks to Baron Decker and Greg. Yeah, that's great. Hey, this is uh, part two of um, a two-part series on uh, Genesis 19, and uh, if you weren't here last week, I'll do a real quick summary in the beginning, but I want to pray because I, I, I feel uh, deeply inadequate, and just to be honest, I feel anxious about preaching uh, as I did last week and this morning, so let's, let's pray together. Father, your word is our authority. I would imagine most, most of us in this room believe that. Uh, functionally, um, at times, we don't believe it. We say thing, one thing in our heart, and at times the way we live is in discontinuity from our beliefs. And so I pray that we would be men and women, boys and girls this morning, that don't sit to the left or the right or sit over the word and judgment of it, but that we would sit under the word as difficult and awkward as it may be with some of the truths that are in the Bible. And this passage is certainly no exception. Father, we feel, I feel, deeply inadequate um, to preach on this topic, to um, encourage and describe and share. I'm sure as we have conversations with family members and, and friends, co-workers, neighbors, that have questions about the Bible, that are struggling with homosexuality or are not struggling because they don't believe it's wrong. But it takes a, a lot of love and a lot of courage to have conversations where we love people enough to enter into an awkward, difficult conversation and many times run the risk of, of losing a friendship. So I pray that we would think hard about the scriptures, that we would embrace them, um, the easy passages to embrace, the difficult ones as well, and that you might teach us that, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that our, our competency, our adequacy for such a task, that is to represent you, does not come from ourselves, does not come from education, does not come from charisma, does not come from being a Christian a long time, but comes from you. And so give us courage, give us listening ears and seeing eyes and receptive hearts that we might hear the Bible and truth. And Father, where I preach and teach things that are not right, may you shut my lips. But where I preach and teach things that are true, um, may we hear them and embrace them and appropriate them into our life um, in order to make you happy. We're thankful that we've made you happy because of Christ. And so may we live and rest in the relationship that is ours if we've come to believe and trust in Jesus as our King and Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Hey, uh, this uh, passage is uh, talked a lot about in the New Testament. Sodom and Gomorrah is mentioned many times. One instance is Luke chapter 17, verses 32 through 33. By the way, I have a handheld because for whatever reason, the little Madonna mic that I put on there, um, it's not working and, and it keeps giving feedback, which is difficult because I'm a gesticulator. You know what a gesticulator is? I talk with my hands like a champ. So when I have a mic in my hand, it slows me down. You're welcome. All right. So Luke 17, verses 32 through 33, here's what Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his or her life will lose it. But whoever loses his or her life will keep it. The judgment that we see in Genesis 19 is a foreshadowing, in many ways, a picture of the judgment that is to come, a more terrifying and comprehensive judgment than what we see in Sodom and Gomorrah. The church today, you and I don't need a visit from angels like Lot and his spouse and daughters and future son-in-laws did to come and warn of judgment. The Bible is replete with examples uh, throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament of the coming judgment. In fact, the cross is a declaration of God's judgment where you see God's justice um, and God's mercy and love um, intersected. But we see in Luke 17, verses 32 through 33, uh, Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. Why? Her heart was attached to what was in Sodom. Um, She had uh, become acclimated, and she was comfortable living there. She's the individual who looks back with, as one writer says, regretful longings upon possessions and enjoyment. And oftentimes when you have a conversation with somebody who is contemplating become a Christian, at times they'll say, I'm not sure I want to give up this, or it means I'll have to change that. And it certainly does. We don't tell people clean themselves up to come to Christ, but we do know that once we come to Christ, Christ is in the business of making us more like Him. But there are times where people say, I do not and I will not give up that. I long for other things or ambitions or pursuits. And we see, as I said last week, What we look at, we often become, and what we want, we often get. What we look at, we often become, and what we want, we often get, meaning we should keep our eyes and our heart and our affections, as Pastor Cody prayed just a moment ago, we should keep them tethered to Jesus. We want to become more and more like Jesus each and every day of our lives. There are four scenes in Genesis 18 through 19. The first scene is that God declares that he is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He tells Abraham, he discloses this information to him. He has told Abraham that he is the father of a multitude of many nations. So he tells him for many reasons. One is, I want you to know this does not um, nullify the promise that I've given you. You are still going to be the father of a multitude of nations. It just doesn't happen that Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be part of it because I'm about to destroy this people. And then Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? He, he enters into this, it's not really a dialogue, but he says, God, will you not spare the righteous? And if there's 50 righteous, will you spare them? And he says, if there's 50 people, I'll spare them. And he goes down to 45 and 40, and you know the dialogue. It's really one-sided. God is just listening to Abraham. And, and he says, hey, if there's 10 righteous people, and God says, if there are 10 righteous people, I'll not destroy the city. Well, the, the city is destroyed. We'll look at it momentarily here in the text. So it tells us that the city was egregiously wicked, as one commentator said, uh, very wicked. 
the outcry was great. There was great oppression in this city of orphans and widows and injustices were rampant. And so scene three is the angels coming to Sodom and Gomorrah and visiting Lot and declaring this imminent destruction. And then scene four or part four of chapter 19 we'll look at just momentarily and briefly is that God destroys this city. Now again, who's reading this? It's a question that, that I've asked more in the book of Genesis than I've ever asked in the history of being a Christian. I've been a Christian 28 years. I've preached 15, 16, 17 books of the Bible as I've been a lead pastor for about a decade. And I have asked the question, who is this written to, more than I've ever asked it because I have struggled with this question. What is the point of Genesis 19? What does it mean? What's the application? This is something long ago. It's a controversial text. What, what application does it bear upon my heart as a believer in the 21st century, uh, November 18, 2018? And so we're going to hopefully answer that question this morning, and hopefully we try to answer it each and every week. But the big idea that I want you to see is that failure to adhere to God's ways, same thing two, three Sundays ago, same thing two Sundays ago, and same thing this morning, failure to adhere to God's ways, specifically of justice and righteousness, can bring about judgment, even horrific judgment. People who have not come under the promise of Christ, who have not believed in Jesus, trusted in Jesus, the Bible is very clear, John 3.17 and a multitude of other verses, that that person stands in unbelief and there is no neutrality with God. We are either for him or against him. And even in our deliberations or in our exploring and discovering or asking questions about the faith, which is right and good and godly, in that moment we stand under the wrath of God. Jesus says himself in John 3.16 and 17 and following. And so failure to keep the way of justice and righteousness can bring about horrific judgment. We see judgment in this passage and we also see delivers. Now, if you weren't here last week, I want to, by way of a summary, and even if you were, I want to just give a real quick couple minutes of summary because it's really important to understand this text. Because there are many people who want to believe the Bible, but want to reinterpret passages so as to give them freedom for particular beliefs or particular behaviors. A major interpretation of Genesis 18, Genesis 18 and 19 is an understanding of the sin in Genesis 19 was not that of homosexuality, but was that of a lack of hospitality. If you look at Genesis 19, verse 5, again, just to be redundant, and they, the men of Sodom, young and old, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now the word know, full disclosure, means to be acquainted with. It means in five other instances in the book of Genesis, not only to be acquainted with in terms of a relationship, friendship, but to be acquainted with sexually. So the logic goes, people who want to reinterpret Genesis 19, apart from a history of interpretation that has stood the test of time for 2,000 years, they'll say, the men of Sodom surrounded Lot's house and were simply asking to be introduced, to be acquainted with, to get to know to establish a friendship with the people that Lot had brought into his house. And Lot was guilty. They would say, people who want to reinterpret Genesis 19, they would say Lot is guilty of the disrespect and the disgrace of not showing hospitality, which is very sacred 
in Eastern, Middle Eastern culture. You can go there today. People who do not believe what you believe, they'll have you into their home. They'll make you a feast, a sumptuous feast. They'll be cordial, cordial and gracious and kind uh, because hospitality is woven into the fabric of their culture. It wasn't because Lot was guilty of hospitality. It was, uh, Lot was, as we see in verse 8, the, the scriptures give us context. Verse 5, And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to unite? Bring them out so that we may know them. The word know is really important. Verse 8, three verses down. Context is king. It helps us understand. Verse 8, Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Lot is not saying, I have two daughters who are betrothed to men, which is really more serious and more significant than engagement, right? Joseph was betrothed to Mary, and he was going to divorce her. You don't divorce somebody when you're engaged. Betrothal is very serious. It's like the penultimate step to marriage. Most people would look at people who are betrothed as if they were married. Lot says, I've got two daughters who are betrothed to be married, and they've not known a man. It would not mean that they have not been acquainted with the man. They've never met the man. They're betrothed. What is going on in this text is that these men, bless you, wanted to know the men that were in Lot's house, not in an, an acquaintance type of way. They wanted to know them in terms of having sexual relations with them. So just to summarize real quickly, the word know, here in Genesis 19, verse 5, Genesis 19, verse 8, and several other instances in the Bible, teaches that it's sexual sin. It's sexual sin that is condemned by God, and it's sexual sin that brought about horrific, terrible judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, I mentioned this last week as well, and I want to do it again, and I'm going to explain these four truths. Last week I mentioned we were all created in God's image, right? We're all created in God's image. We are distinct from the animal kingdom. We can have a relationship with God. We can know him. We can actually emulate God in our life in many ways. We can actually represent, represent him in terms of faithfulness and his graciousness and slowness to anger and his love and compassion. We don't do it perfectly, but God has called us. And when we say we want to glorify God, it's a Christian phrase that we say a lot. What does it mean to glorify God? It means that we go out in the world and we represent him. We represent what he's like. It, it, we do it deficiently and imperfectly, but to glorify him is to actually represent him by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we are all created in God's image, and yet we have rebelled in our lives. Every one of us, man, woman, boy, girl. Secondly, we've fallen. We've all turned aside. We've all corrupted our image. And in Christ, we get a new identity a new identity in Christ, and then restoration we hope in future grace. Now, I'm going to spend the next 15, 20 minutes talking about the sin of homosexuality like I did last week, and I want to walk through those four truths, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and, and this will be the second Sunday out of 140, 150, 160 sermons I've preached. There's 52 Sundays in a year, um, and I've preached on homosexuality specifically twice. Now, if it makes you uncomfortable, you're listening. You're not even preaching. Okay, so it makes me uncomfortable. So I would just say, give me grace and get over yourself. Because I'm the more, this is more awkward for me. I'm the one talking about it. 4% of the Sundays, I'm talking about this issue. It's not 10%. It's not 50%. If, if it was 50 or 
uh, there'd be a problem because the Bible actually doesn't speak about it that much. But when it does, we should take time to address it. And that's what I tried to do last week, and that's what I want to do this morning. I want to differentiate between two terms, SSA and gay, or homosexuality. SSA means same-sex same attraction. Okay, we have people in our fellowship and in every fellowship, every church that I've ever served that struggle with SSA. They are attracted to somebody of the same gender. They struggle because they say, I'm a believer in Christ. I believe the Bible. I believe that is sin, and I'm struggling with SSA. In the same way that every person in this room struggles with sin. Okay? Do you struggle with anger? Do you struggle with lust? Do you struggle with bitterness? Do you struggle with unforgiveness? Do you struggle with greed? Do you struggle with hoarding riches? Do you struggle with finding your identity in your job or your marriage or whatever it is other than Christ? Every one of us struggles with sin. If you do not struggle with sin, you are making my case because you struggle with pride. Every one of us struggles with sin. Okay, so SSA can be applied to everybody in the room in terms of a struggle. I'm a believer, I believe the Bible, and I know there's things that the Bible teaches that are sin, and I struggle. So an SSA, a person who's struggled with SSA, same-sex attraction. A person who says, I'm gay or homosexual, is saying one of two things. This is who I am. I do not think the Bible um, teaches that it's a sin, I'm born this way or I've chosen whatever it is. I don't think it's a sin and, and I'm not struggling with it. I'm not in a same-sex attraction. That I, I, this is who I am. I'm, I'm not struggling. This is my identity. Or somebody would say, uh, yeah, I might, I might think that it's sin, but I've acquiesced. Um, and, and really, the more I think about it and I get people who affirm and say, it's okay, this is who you are. So I, I'm, I'm gay. I'm a homosexual. A person says, I'm gay or homosexual is saying, I don't, I don't think it's a sin, and this is who I am. This is my identity. A person who's SSA, and now you're like, good night, to move on. I think it's important. Same-sex attraction. It's wrong, and I'm trying to live out my identity, not as a sexual being, but as a Christian, right? Christian comes first, right? You don't introduce yourself and say, I'm a, I'm a, hom I'm a homosexual or I'm a heterosexual. Hi, I'm Nate. I'm a believer in Christ. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a pastor, I'm a Cowboys fan, I'm a Braves fan, I'm a University of Kentucky fan, and oh, by the way, I struggle with these sins. We don't introduce ourselves, but this sin has become so prominent in our culture and so controversial and so volatile. Oftentimes people say, hey, I'm Nate, and they introduce themselves as this because this is their identity. That is shallow thinking. We are way more than our sexuality. You understand that, right? We're way more than our sexuality. A lot of Christians think of homosexuality only in terms of sex. They believe that a person is in a particular community because they want to have sex with a person of the same gender. That is not totally true. It's partly true, it's not totally true. Most Christians have not thought through this issue enough to realize that there's more to someone who identifies as LGBT than merely sexuality. All people have experiences, history, beliefs, friends, family members, surroundings, environments uh, that make them the people that they are, right? I mean, you do as well. As one person said, people have depth. People have depth. You are not a simple person. 
I'm not a simple person. We are complex individuals with all sorts of moving parts. And to merely say he is a heterosexual or she is a homosexual is shallow, shallow surface thinking because we are way more than our sexuality. So let me walk through four realities that are in your program with peace and they'll be on the screens as well. First is this, homosexuals are like you and like me and the person next to you in that we are all marred image bearers. It's no coincidence that the Apostle Paul and Colossians to the saints in Colossae writes this letter and he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you look at Jesus, who are you seeing? You're seeing God in the flesh, right? The Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is God in the flesh. We are marred image bearers. We have rebelled. We are self-reliant. We've wanted to pursue our own ways. If you're religious, you understand that. If you're irreligious, this this is what the Bible teaches about who you are. And so when we become a believer in Christ, our image, which is tainted and marred and corrupted and sinful, is made new in Christ because Christ is the image of the invisible God. So when God sees Jesus, he sees the Son. And when he sees us, if we're in Christ, we have a new identity and image in morality, in religious works. No, in Christ. Reality two, homosexuals have turned aside. All sin is twisted. Do you know that all sin is twisted? When I grab somebody out in the hall and I gossip about them and I malign their character, you know that that's a twisted form of speech. We're using speech. We're using our tongues in ways that dishonor the Father. It's twisted. Do you know that when we're jealous and we look to the left and right and we see what she has or we see what he has and we want that, you know, that's twisted? Do you know when we look at married couples and we say, oh, I wish I could have it as easy as them. I wish I could have kids like that or I wish I could have a kid. Whatever it is, all sin is twisted. The Apostle Paul mentions homosexual acts in Romans chapter 1, verse 26, and he says they're contrary to nature. But he was, he's emphasizing that homosexuality is a physical illustration of a spiritual condition. Homosexuality is a physical illustration of our spiritual condition. The bodily inversion reflects our spiritual inversion. We're all made in God's image, but through birth and choice, we've all turned aside, and the image of God is distorted and perverted. And like spiritual zombies, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3, through we're dead. We're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course, the path, the trajectory of this world, not the world to come, following the prince of the power of the air, the devil carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We are victims swept along by desires, environments, surroundings, and yes, even as Paul says in Ephesians 2, demonic forces. This is why homosexuality at times doesn't feel like a choice when I talk to some of my friends. This is also why when you get sinfully angry, it doesn't feel like a choice. This is also why when you're bitter and enraged with resentment, it doesn't feel like a choice. You feel like your sin has been thrust upon you and you have no choice but to succumb to this. Have you ever been there in, in your sin at times? You feel like this, I don't even feel like I had a choice. Unforgiveness, bitterness, anger, jealousy, greed, covetousness, whatever it is. At times, I don't feel like I have a choice. And we know that the scriptures teach that we do. It's, it's complex, isn't it? 
just to say to someone, stop being angry. Stop being bitter. Stop being unforgiving. That's really not helpful. You understand that, right? It's really never helpful because sin and our lives are complex. And the Bible actually speaks to how we can actually walk in a way that honors Christ. We, as people, have been drafted by strong forces and are engulfed by all sorts of painful, difficult, complex experiences. Our stories differ. And if you go north a month or two ago, you'd see the leaves changing color, right, in the fall. We don't have that here. But just like leaves vary in color, our lives vary in uniqueness in terms of our particular struggles, but we are the same. We are made of the same stuff. We're made of the same stuff. Third, homosexuals and sinners alike can find a new identity. I love this. Homosexuals can find a new identity. A Christian is an image bearer of the king of the universe, and oftentimes they mislabel themselves things such as, I'm an alcoholic, I'm a loser, I'm a workaholic, or I'm a homosexual. God refuses to leave us to those labels. He refuses to leave us to those labels. I'll tell you one of the the problems I have with certain rehabilitation programs with people who have substance abuse. They introduce themselves, hi, my name is Nate, I'm an alcoholic. I may not have drank in two weeks or two hours or 20 years or 60 years, but that is still a label that I use for myself. The Bible doesn't do that. You understand that. The Bible does not do that. The Bible says I'm a believer in Christ. My struggle past, even in the recent past, does not define my identity. Who defines my identity? Not society, not culture, not a program, not Nate, not the church, not politics. The Bible says God is the one who determines our identity. And when you're a believer, your identity has changed from whatever your sin was to now I'm a son and a daughter of the king. End of the story. So the next time you want to introduce yourself, and don't do it. Just remember, if Nate hears about it, he'll be annoyed and he'll incorporate me into the sermon. I won't do that, but we should introduce ourselves as a believer. I'm a believer. My sin does not define me. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be our sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God gives us Jesus' righteousness. As I've said many times, there's this great cosmic exchange where Jesus takes our sin and we get the righteousness, the obedience, the purity of Jesus. Jesus absorbed our sin on the cross, rose again so that we could, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, put on the new self, the new identity, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And I love this statement. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, the message of Christianity is not an invitation to do better or try harder. The gospel of Jesus, the message of Christ, the good news of Christ, is not an invitation to do better or try harder. It is a death certificate that unfolds into a birth certificate, providing us with a renewed identity. You get a new identity in Christ. So anybody can find a new identity. So please, don't ever say, they are a hopeless cause. They will never change. They can never change. 
you changed. What we do is we elevate people's sin and we think, I don't know if God could ever do that. Really? If you're a believer in Christ, he's done it with you. And what we do, we become so familiar with the message of Christ, we fail to see it is powerful. It is powerful. Nothing on earth compares to the good news of Christ. And there is always standing ready joy and hope and forgiveness and a new identity if they will but come to Jesus on Jesus' terms. Fourthly and lastly, not lastly of the sermon, fourthly of this point, moving on to a couple more things. Homosexuals and heterosexual, homosexuals and heterosexuals like hope in grace together. The Christian life is a call to live with other men and other women, to live in community. All cravings still pursue us, right? We have people who, who still go through different cravings. And if change, hear me out, if change means that the homosexual will never hear the voice of homosexual desires, then change may be a delusion. But what fornicator, gossip, thief, adulterer, liar, who's come to faith in Christ, never expects to hear the invitation back to lusting, stealing, gossiping, or deceiving? My point is, I'm a believer, but I have not arrived where I do not struggle some of you, it makes you deeply uncomfortable that your lead pastor actually talks about his struggles. I want you to know I struggle mightily. I am glad at times there's not a camera that watches me every single minute of my day. Because you'd say, um, I'm not sure I want to listen to him preach. And if we had a camera follow you, I'd say, I'm not sure we want to let you in the door. It works both ways, my friends. We struggle together. We struggle together. And what do we do? We hope and future grace. Grace has saved us, right? For you're saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's not by works. It's through Jesus. But we have future grace, right? We hope in future grace. If God has called me to live a life of obedience and holiness, he's also going to give me the divine enablement, grace, to actually do that which he's called me to do and to be. But being always precedes doing. Being always proceeds doing. I mean, I don't do in order to be. I am, therefore I do. You get that backwards, you're preaching a different message and it's not the message of the Bible. Because of who I am, I have power in the name of Christ to actually be who God wants me to be. I want to read this quote and I want to talk about the Bible a little bit since I haven't really walked through the scriptures. Okay, here's Timothy Keller. I mentioned this last week. I think it's a fantastic quote. Talks about how we should be compassionate. Filled people. There are many people who have no idea what they should be living for or the meaning of their lives, nor have they any guide to tell them right from wrong. God does not look down at those people in that kind of spiritual fog and say, you idiots. When we look at people who have brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness, and we say things like, serves them right, or we mock them on social media, what kind of imbecile says something like this? When we see people of the other political party defeated and we just gloat, this is all a way of detaching ourselves from them. We distance ourselves from them partly out of pride because we do not want their unhappiness to be our unhappiness. God does not do that. God does not do that. Real compassion, the voluntary attachment of our hearts to other people means the sadness of their condition makes us sad. It affects us. That is deeply, deeply, I think, uncomfortable 
But it's the character of compassion, and it's the character of the compassion that we see of God. Voluntary attachment to you and to me. And yet we see in this passage, failure to keep the way of justice and righteousness can bring about judgment, even horrific judgment. The first 14 verses of chapter 19 are the account of God sending a warning to his people that judgment is imminent, it's coming. And Lot attempts to relay the message, and how do his future son-in-laws respond? They laugh. They think he was jesting, joking. Now, I don't know what that means. It could mean that Lot was the consummate jokester. It could mean that Lot didn't have integrity, that he would often say, do as I say, not as I do. It could mean that his son-in-laws, future son-in-laws, did not have much respect for him. It can mean a whole host of things. Regardless, his son-in-law's laugh, reminiscent of Sarah who laughed. Remember, uh, the father, he revealed himself as Adonai, a God who actually uh, performs miracles by way of his majestic power and might. Adonai is what the word means. Uh, God says, Adonai says to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have a child. You're going to be the father of a multitude of nations. And this promise is not going to come through Ishmael. It's not going to come through your servant Eleazar. It's not going to come through Lot. It's going to come through Sarah. Biologically, she's going to have a child. His name's going to be Isaac. And when she said that, you know what Sarah did? <laughs> I am past the childbearing age. She was like 85. Okay, now that's it's kind of old. I'm not saying you're old. I'm saying if you had a child at 85, you'd be in the Guinness Book of World Records. You'd probably get some money. That'd be amazing. Sarah's like 85. She's past childbearing and she laughs. She laughs or scoffs at a promise of God that is revealed to her. The son-in-laws laugh because of a different promise. The promise of imminent destruction. I was talking with a friend of mine in weeks past who, he and I have very different beliefs and I was talking to him about this passage and, and many other things and I got really emotional I got I got teary-eyed just trying to hold my stuff together and I couldn't hold it together and he looked at me and I, I, I was hoping he wouldn't notice which was dumb because it was just me and him and he goes why, why are you getting emotional and I said I so want you to know this truth I so want you to find joy in your life and rest for your soul that is pursuing all other things other than God. And I'd love to be able to tell you in weeks past, uh, he walked away and says, you know what? It's time that I follow Jesus. That's, that's not where he was. It's not where many of your family members are. It's not where many of your friends are. And they stand under the wrath of God, the Bible tells us. Failure to adhere to God's ways, which is all of us, amounts to potentially horrific judgment. His son-in-laws, we're going to experience that here momentarily in the text. But Lot is not much better, is he? How does Lot respond? He tarries. He lingers. He waits. I love what Claude King and Henry Blackaby in a Bible study that I did like 25 years ago called Experiencing God. He says that delayed obedience is... Disobedience. I mean, that's just like, that's like the one thing I remember. There was like a 200-page Bible study, but that, that was enough. Delayed obedience, disobedience. If God has said something in his word, our only right response is to obey immediately, 
It does not mean it's easy at times. Sometimes it will be unbelievably difficult. But delayed obedience is disobedience. Lot was disobedient. He was lingering, waiting, tarrying. And the Bible says that the angels grabbed him, comma, and it says God was merciful. The word merciful means and teaches us, it's speaking about compassion that leads to delivering or sparing somebody from judgment. God was merciful. He delivered Lot and spared him from judgment to come. He showed him mercy. And what do the scriptures teach? If you look down at verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar or Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, Nate, did she become a pillar of salt? Either she became a pillar of salt or the writer of Genesis is telling us something that she became, and it was not good. Whatever happened to Lot's wife is not something that you want for your life, okay? She looked back, and Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. What she want to do? She looked back. She was given specific instructions. Don't do this. She looked back. She longed for Sodom and Gomorrah. She wanted to be there. She, lo- she longed for that, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place, verse 27, where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. God remembered Abraham. As I've said countless times, the phrase God remembers means that God is not stagnant. He's not aloof, but he's action-oriented. He's moving towards Abraham. He's moving towards Abraham and wants Abraham to know, I've not forgotten the promise that I've made to you. I know when I said the father of a multitude of nations is your new name, Abraham, and you're looking at the smoke rise from Sodom and Gomorrah, and I've decimated that city because they were wicked and evil, egregiously wicked. And you may be thinking, God's not going to be faithful. I, I remember you, Abraham. I remember. Now you say, Nate, I appreciate last week. We had no song of response. The sermon was heavy. Please, for the love of God, tell me that you're going to give me some, some good words here. Not yet. Look at verse 30. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in the cave. He's hiding out in a cave. Two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. And I want to tell you, I said this in the first service, and I mean this, and I'm not trying to be trite and comical. If this is your first time to Foothills, first time in church, or you're new, I'm sorry. Because not only have I already talked about heavy things, but what I'm about to talk about is heavy, and it's just just kind of awkward and uncomfortable. So there's, again, my third preface. I really do believe the Bible, but it is awkward. Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us, meaning have a sexual relationship with us, After the manner of all the earth, come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the first one went in and lay with their father. He didn't know what she laid down or when she arose. And the second night, his second daughter did so. You think, what is going on? You've got Genesis 19, Lot, who's just a sorry guy. Right? I mean, he's just, he's just a sorry guy. He, he says, don't take my guest, but he offers his daughters 
to the men, young and old, of Sodom. And then you have his daughters looking at what's happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, thinking there's, there's no men. We're never going to be given away in marriage. We just got our dad. I know he's very old, but let's have a relationship with him to preserve our family line. Good or bad? Bad. Disgusting. Wicked. Egregious. Sinful. You know what it tells us? Among many things, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but Sodom and Gomorrah wasn't really destroyed, was it? Who did it follow? Lot and his daughters. And you know what? It doesn't just stop in Genesis 19. It's rampant and prevalent in Phoenix, Arizona, United States, and the world. Yet you can't take Sodom and Gomorrah out of people's hearts by morality or religious works. The only one who can change us from doing wicked, evil things, maybe not like that, but other evil, wicked things, is the good news of the message of Christ. So Nate, where is this good news? Right, remember last week, a couple weeks ago, I did that little chart, had a little, little neon marker, and I talked about there's a particular text, right? We want to read the text, understand the text, and then we want to move to what's the original audience? Who's the them and the they? Who is who is the them and the they for Genesis 19? But what a lot of preachers do and what a lot of Christians do and what I've done many, many times is we want to go from the them and the they and we want to go straight to application of my life. Um, don't be like Lot's daughters. Check. Got that one. Don't be like Lot. Don't be like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's, there's the moral principle. There's lessons for life. As I leave foothills, that's what I need to do. That's not the point. We want to understand the Bible who are the them and the they? And then we want to do some theological reflection. What does the Bible teach us? As we read the New Testament and we understand what's happened in the past, what did the Old Testament foreshadow and picture? And we read the New Testament, how does it inform us? So let me try to walk through that real quickly. Lot's daughters have two sons. And their sons are the beginning of two tribes called the Moabites, and the Ammonites, okay? The Moabites and the Ammonites. If you fast forward to the time of Judges, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, the time of Judges, there's a famine. And a Jewish family from Bethlehem moves to the place called Moab. A guy by the name of Elimelech. He has a wife named Naomi. And they have two sons, Malon and Chilion. And they immigrate to the nearby country of Moab. Elimelech dies. Naomi's husband dies. And their sons marry two Moabite women. Malon marries Ruth and Chilion marries Orpah. What happens to those men? Both of their, both of their husbands die. So they are left husbandless and Naomi is left sonless. And they stay in Moab. Ruth does with Naomi, and eventually Ruth meets a man named Boaz. You still with me? Ruth meets a, a man named Boaz. Boaz was a wealthy landowner of Bethlehem in Judea, and he was kinsman. He was family of Elimelech, so he's related to Elimelech, a Naomi's late husband. And he notices Ruth, who's in the field, Gleaning, She's gathering food for herself and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. And he understands that she is in his family tree. Fast forward, Ruth marries Boaz. Now, Boaz, most commentators think he was about 80. Ruth was 40. Boaz did well. Boaz did well. 
And they have a son named Obed. And then Obed has a son named Jesse. And then Jesse has a son named who? David. Has a son named David. And you see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God tells, tells David, David, you're going to have a descendant on the throne and his kingdom is going to be from everlasting to everlasting. You fast forward to the genealogy of Christ in Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, you know who's there? You've got the people that I just mentioned, Obed, Jesse, and David, that are in the genealogy of Christ. And what Matthew is doing is trying to say this Christ, this Messiah, he's got this lineage that goes all the way back and this pronouncement, this declaration that there's going to be this kingdom from everlasting to everlasting came through Obed, came through Jesse, came through David, and is fulfilled in the person, the work of Christ. What does that tell us among many things? God can take horrific, evil, wicked circumstances and do what? Make good come out of them. Amen to that. The word amen means let it be done. He can take horrific, evil, wicked circumstances and bring good out of it. And that's really the Father's M.O. That's how he operates all the time. Think of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, which we say all the time. God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, not when we had it all together, not when we were moral and clean cut, not when we smelled good, not when we started attending church, not when we started acting the way Christians are supposed to act, not when we started wearing Christian t-shirts and listening to Christian music and being part of the Christian subculture, not even when we started believing. Christ died for us when we were enemies, when we didn't want anything to do with God. What does he do? He extends an offer of a relationship to us. So having the mindset that people have to clean themselves up in order to come to God is antithetical to the scriptures. But also, as I've been trying to say since last week and today, having a mindset where everyone else is different and I'm better and I've, I've, I've reached and I've, I've arrived is a fast track to being a grace failure. Christians are grace people. You are a believer because of grace. You have your opportunities because of grace. You have your privileges and your honors and your identity because of grace. Everything you have is grace. It ultimately is not because of you. It's because of the gracious disposition and action of the Father. So as I close, what do we do? That's why we need to continually keep our eyes on Jesus and have him inform us his word about sexuality, about marriage, about identity, about parenting, every single thing in our life. Because what we look at, we're going to become, and what we want, we often will get. Virgie Brown said this, true joy is found in the will of God. This is so true for people who are struggling with all sins or aren't struggling and think, this is who I am. True joy is found in the will of God. The world lies and promises that we'll be happy and free if we just go, let go of our prudish ways and follow our passions. As someone who has sat with people who have gone down that path, let me tell you how it ends. It always ends in despair and pain and brokenness. If not in this life, and it does in this life, we just do a masterful job of concealing it. But if people want to act as if there's really not despair and brokenness and suffering, it will end that way in the life 
to come. Do not believe the world's lies. Jesus offers us something greater than the lesser pleasures of this world. He gives us himself. God has blessed us in Christ. We have every spiritual blessing we could ever need or want, and the delight of knowing God and living according to his purposes is more exhilarating and fulfilling than any other pursuit the world says pursue. Which is why every day, every single day, we need to ask for grace and to sit under the power of the benevolent king and sovereign king of the universe who meets us where we are, who takes broken sinners, heterosexuals and homosexuals alike, and gives them a new identity as son or daughter and gives us an inheritance that is beyond anything that we could ever imagine. God is for you, he loves you, and he is relentless in his pursuit of you. Amen? Father, thank you for the truth of the Bible. Help us to be men and women that come under your word, I'm preaching to the choir in many ways, meaning I'm preaching a truth that's familiar and people believe that we do not look down upon others. We do not think that we are morally superior to others because of our belief in Christ. We understand there's level footing at the cross and there are some who still need to be convinced from your word by the Spirit of God that there is level footing at Golgotha, the hill in which Christ was crucified. Help us to be men and women who exude compassion that is vulnerable and transparent and that is action-oriented. Father, I pray for men and women in this room that heard a hard, tough word and maybe they're irritated, maybe they're annoyed, maybe they're angry, maybe the stereotypes of Christianity have been confirmed. I, I pray that you would soften their heart, help them to see that real joy, substantive, lasting, eternity-changing joy comes in you, your commandments, your word, your truth are not burdensome. They are life-giving. And yet, Father, it does not mean that walking the Christian life is not fraught with all sorts of hardships and difficulties. But you call us out of our sin and place us in a community of believers called the church. May this church more and more increasingly be a church that is humble, that is compassionate, that is loving that doesn't nullify the truth, that stands firm on the truth, but does so in a way that makes Jesus smile. Father, would you do that in our hearts? Would you do that in our fellowship? Would you please do that? Please do that. In Christ's name we pray.